welcome to Embodying Change, a podcast about cultivating care and compassion in aid and development. I'm Melissa Pitati, and this podcast is part of an initiative I'm working on with Marianne Clements, which is being hosted by the CHS Alliance. Our work looks at the intersections between mental health, people management, and organizational culture using the lens of care and compassion. Today, you'll hear me talk with Jules Frost and Rachel Coughlin about what humanitarians can learn from palliative care. In this conversation, you'll hear some personal stories, so bring some tissues just in case. You'll hear about small but potent acts of compassion that you can try today for free. We talk about the duty to care for ourselves and one another, the cost-benefit analysis of compassion, and the chance to say with humility and dignity that we are doing our best and that is okay. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did, so here we go. Welcome, Jules Frost and Rachel Coughlin. Hi. Hi. It's so nice to have you both with me today for the podcast. Um, To start, uh, Jules, do you mind to introduce yourself and your role at the CHS Alliance? Thanks so much, Melissa, for having us here today. My name's Jules Frost, and I am the head of programs and partnerships at the CHS Alliance. And um, I lead a team of experts um, that work in accountability to affected people, protection against sexual exploitation, abuse and harassment and people management. And the team works to support the members of the CHS Alliance in improving their practice and policy in these areas as the members work towards fulfilling the core humanitarian standard. And I'm thrilled to be here today uh, with Rachel Coughlin, who's a dear friend and former colleague of mine. Uh, Rachel and I met each other, I believe in 2008, uh, when I was working uh, with World Vision Australia, Rachel joined uh, the team. This was post the Asia tsunami days. And she was working with my boss at the time who, became the deputy CEO and uh, she was working on strategy and we had a great opportunity to get to know each other uh, during that and have stayed uh, close friends over the years. Uh, Rachel is still in Australia. I'm now in Switzerland um, where the CHS Alliance is headquartered. So Rachel is a public health professional with 20 years experience in clinical practice and in international public health research policy and advocacy. Rachel, uh, it's very impressive, is currently undertaking a doctor of philosophy at the Center of Humanitarian Leadership at Deakin University in Melbourne. Her research is exploring the place of palliative care in humanitarian emergencies and crisis with a specific focus on armed conflict settings. She's passionate about improving access to quality care for seriously ill and dying people experiencing war, displacement, disaster, or epidemics. Rachel is a palliative care uh, physiotherapist at Calvary Healthcare Bethlehem in Melbourne and a researcher with Palliative Nexus at the University of Melbourne. She is an executive member of the Palliative Care in Humanitarian Aid Situations and Emergencies Network and is on the executive of the Australian, Australian Asian, sorry, uh, Palliative Care 
Palliative Link International and a member of the Australian COVID-19 Palliative Care Working Group, which is, as we all know, a really um, key aspect uh, affecting society as a whole today, uh, the COVID pandemic. So I'm thrilled that uh, Rachel has agreed to be on this podcast with ourselves here today. Um, so welcome, Rachel. Thanks so much, Jules, and thanks, Melissa, for having me. Um, it's very exciting to be here. I just got a little bit teary then, Jules, reminiscing about the good old days of World Vision. <laughs> it was a wonderful time working with you, and I'm really uh, just thrilled that I've watched your career and where you are now with this very important area um, that often people don't think about within, I think, the humanitarian sector and that of palliative care. Yeah, speaking of that, I was wondering, Rachel, if you could tell us how you got interested in palliative care. Yeah, sure. So I think um, a couple of ways. I think from professionally, um, when I, not long after I first graduated um, from physiotherapy, um, I was working in a community rehabilitation team in London, actually. Um, and I had a lot of patients referred to me um, that I visited at home who had been diagnosed with motor neurone disease. Um, and all of a sudden I was um, forced to contemplate how to support somebody as a physiotherapist um, who had a, a terminal illness. And, um, you know, in some cases were not going to live more than six months. Um, and it was something that we hadn't studied at university. Um, it was it was reasonably new to me as a professional physiotherapist um, to work out how best to support um, these people and and how best to support their families. And so I became very passionate about um, palliative care and started um, yeah started looking into how I could improve my my communication skills in supporting people with life limiting life threatening illness. Um, I ended up then working for the Motor Neurone Disease Association in London um, and uh, became a, a care advisor um, for people living with motor neurone disease and their families. Um, and then, and then I, I moved into international development and humanitarian work, um, but this passion for palliative care and, and working on palliative care professionally uh, just hadn't left, didn't leave me. And I um, then embarked on this PhD, um, specifically looking at palliative care and humanitarian crises. And I've gone back to do clinical palliative care physiotherapy work as well, which is uh, one of the best things I've ever done and the most rewarding mm -hmm. things I've ever done. Um, and I think, but I, I think my sort of desire to work with people with life-limiting illness stems back far further than that and goes far deeper than that. I think um, I often tell a story of how one of my most vivid first memories was as a four-year-old going to visit my uh, grandfather who was unwell um, at his home with my mum and my brother and he collapsed and died, had a massive heart attack and collapsed and died right there in front of us. And my, I have these vivid memories of going um, and hanging out in the ambulance. One of the paramedics took my brother and I into the ambulance and we played with some oxygen, oxygen masks and 
went for a, you know, hoon around the block in the ambulance while the other paramedic was with my mum in the house. Um, and I, I, I've always had a passion for helping people, um, a passion for community service and an interest in death and dying, I think. Um, and I'm not afraid to use those words either. Yeah, and I, as I was working, oh, yeah, casual jobs to put myself through university, I worked um, as an attendant carer in a nursing home um, and worked for people with disabilities in a caring role. So I've always been on that kind of a path, I think. Wow, that's a real formative experience. Yeah, and it's amazing uh, how sort of has kept coming up over the last few years as I've embarked on this PhD as well in trying to think where where did this start where did this all come from yeah other you know I mean there are other things that that shape how you got to be where you are like my mother worked in nursing homes mm -hmm. as well and I used to go and hang out with her and um, play piano for the residents in aged care facilities and just have a chat on a Saturday afternoon while she was working um, yeah Wow. Lots of things, I guess, have gone into shaping why I'm here. And I like that you said you're not afraid of using the words death and dying. Mm. Because in our line of work in humanitarian action, there's a huge focus on life saving. And a lot of priority goes into that. But not every life can be saved. So I'm uh, curious what you think about that juxtaposition since you're looking at palliative care and humanitarian action together. Yeah, so I think um, obviously life-saving is of absolute importance um, and we would, you know, in the healthcare world do what we can to help save somebody if that's the best thing for them. Um, but it doesn't mean that there's never anything that we can do for a very sick or a dying person. And it doesn't mean that there aren't things that we can do to support their families as well. Um, and I think even though we have, we have this, you know, superiority of saving lives, that's um, in some ways, you know, something that has come about throughout the 20th century really as we've um, improved in our ability to provide healthcare and the tech, you know, tech biomedical um, technical aspects of healthcare, we've become less reluctant to, to deal with death and dying and in some contexts have started to see, you know, death is a potential failure, death is a, a taboo topic that we no longer want to embrace or to talk about. Um, and I, I think in, in some aspects of, of humanitarian work, um, that's where we've ended up as well in humanitarian healthcare response. Um, and this bias, I think, then lends itself to, you know, the bias of curative care and of curative biomedicine means we, we sometimes neglect softer aspects for want of a better word, although I don't like to use the word soft, um, softer aspects of, of compassionate care, like presence and accompanying somebody and mm. listening to them um, in their serious illness and in their, in their death and dying. And I think it's, it's, it's very easy in a humanitarian context, particularly where you have situations of such resource scarcity and, and limits of material and human resources are major challenges to the implementation of or the integration of palliative care 
Um, but it doesn't mean that there's not always something that we can do for a person who may be seriously suffering um, from serious illness or dying. One of the things that we're looking at in the initiative that we're working on at CHS Alliance is this concept of compassion. Um, as I've been studying co compassion, I've been struck at some of my most treasured teachers have their roots in palliative care. Um, for example, Joan Halifax that talks about the edge states. She, she wrote a book about some of the pitfalls that um, humanitarian actors and social workers and others in the helping professions can fall into. Um, here locally in Switzerland, Dominique Cassidy, um, who's teaching a lot about mindfulness. She has every summer gone to India to a hospice there. So I'm curious um, if we look at the word compassion, um, you wrote last year that palliative care and humanitarian action share fundamental goals to relieve suffering and uphold dignity and both hold an ethical root in the recognition of our common suffering in illness and dying, our compassionate action in response to suffering and our common humanity. So I'm curious um, from your perspective, what does compassion mean to you and why do you think it matters? So I think compassion is, is central to the humanitarian principle of humanity. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of philosophers who've written, who've written about what humans do in response to suffering um, and that we respond with compassion and with love um, because, we because we are all human and we feel um, an, an affinity with, with the suffering person. Um, and we also know that humanitarian action is a, is a compassionate response to severe suffering um, that we encounter in emergency and crisis. Um, and that authentic acts of compassion um, really are there to shine a light on the profound sense of the irrepla irreplaceable preciousness of the person that is being comforted, um, that we are comforting. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're saying when we provide compassion to suffering others that we, we are with you, we understand you and, and we are walking with you. I think one of the, one of the key aspects um, that's relevant to palliative care, but was something that French philosopher Simone Weil wrote about was that compassion starts with a genuine attention for a person and that if we're paying proper attention to somebody it will lead to empathic listening um, and to, to witnessing their story and in palliative care attending to a person's story or their illness narrative is is one of the things that we're, we're trained to do we're, we're not just focusing on a person's physical pain or how to control their symptoms but we're trying to understand the person as a whole um, and listen, listen to, to their illness narrative and create meaning of their suffering. And, and that can be of, of immense therapeutic value as well. But we have to be compassionate people um, in order to, to be able to, to listen empathically and, and to bear witness to their suffering. Jules, does that bring anything up for you? Because as Rachel's talking, I keep thinking, uh, it keeps sparking links to what the CHS Alliance is doing. For example, this idea of listening um, this is something that's very important and um, what the CHS Alliance in terms of uh, working with affected populations to really con connect to what people want. Um, I'm seeing the, the idea of presence and attention 
um, in the CHS core competency framework, one of the key things when you're hiring someone is they need to have a level of awareness. That's a competency that sometimes I think is not getting enough attention, <laughs> ironically. <laughs> as, as you were just speaking there, Rachel, I think um, what came to mind from the, the core humanitarian standard and then the CHS Alliance um, who supports our members in applying that is at the center of the standard is our concern um, for people affected by crisis. Um, and really putting our attention there. Uh, and that, as you said, the genuine attention to a person and their needs enables, I think, compassion and to really hear uh, where they are and how we can serve and support them. And with um, people at the center of humanitarian action, uh, the CHS Alliance is predominantly concerned on how we provide the life-saving assistance. Um, and compassion and care are key aspects to that. So thank you, Melissa, for, for raising that. Thank you. Um, Rachel, you've been, I think you're a prolific writer, so it's very easy for us to prepare this interview. <laughs> uh, one of the pieces you've written that uh, I commend to our listeners uh, was published in July, 2020. Um, I think with the, in partnership with the ICRC, um, you put out a call to action and mm. you call for an ethical debate uh, around several topics. One a topic you singled out was how to support healthcare workers who may be experiencing moral distress in caring for dying patients. And we found this uh, in people who've come forward talking about some of the challenges they've had in the context of our initiative to cultivate caring and compassionate aid organizations, that there's questions about how to best support aid workers who may be feeling um, th their compassion <laughs> uh, almost so intensely, it can impact them personally mm -hmm. um, and it creates a struggle, um, challenges. I'm curious from your experience in palliative care, what have you seen in terms of some best practice when it comes to looking out for those support, those people in support roles that are trying to maintain their own well-being in the process of supporting others? It's a fascinating question, Melissa. I think particularly this year, in the year of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, as Jules mentioned in my in the introduction, I've been part of um, a working group in Australia, um, the Australian COVID-19 Palliative Care Working Group that is um, was set up by Palliative Care Australia and a whole bunch of other individual experts and, and palliative care peak bodies across the country. And one of the things this group, although not in a humanitarian context as, as we know it, one of the things this group has been grappling with is um, you know, our own humanitarian crisis in trying to understand how do we, even in Australia where it hasn't even been so bad comparative to other contexts, um, you know, provide the best possible care to people who may be seriously suffering and or dying from, from COVID-19 or from the impacts of lockdown um, and, and, you know, not accessing healthcare in the way that they might normally do so. 
And one of the things that's really struck me in this conversation, and, and this part of that conversation has been moral distress or, or moral anxiety um, has come up for even healthcare professionals um, in the Australian context, as it has for health professionals all over the world. Um, so one of the things that's come up is, you know, how, how do we how do we best alleviate this moral grief or anxiety or distress um, in our healthcare professionals? And I've I've drawn on um, some of the things that I've learnt from working in the humanitarian space, um, and I think things that people living through humanitarian crisis can actually teach us about, or, or people working in humanitarian crisis can actually teach us about responding to moral grief or not allowing it to, to fester and eventuate in the first place. Um, in that, I think those working in humanitarian crisis get good at um, practicing amidst resource scarcity having to make really difficult ethical decisions um, quickly in, in um, difficult circumstances, um, in taking leadership in difficult um, ethical decisions, and in recognising, I think, that there is always something that you can do for somebody, even if it is what I call in one of my papers, small but potent acts of compassion. There's always something you can do, even if you don't have the, the, the opioids or the morphine pain relief you might desire in a particular context, there's still always something that you can do. And that we also need to have some humility to recognise that we can't always solve everything. Um, and it, I think if we recognise that, um, then it, it goes a long way to helping us manage any kind of moral distress or, or ethical anxiety we may feel. Um, in a situation where things are really dire. Um, and so that's something that I've been talking about in the Australian context in, in response to COVID-19 and saying, you know, humanitarians could actually teach us a lot, even in our own context, in how to respond to resource scarcity, how to respond to what we perceive as a humanitarian crisis and, and say that whatever we practice, if we practice it with humility and with compassion, we are doing our best and that is okay. So that's, I think that's one key point that's come up for me this year. And that, um, and so one specific example of that, um, I guess is a, a program that I've had a, a tiny bit of involvement with that's been a, a reciprocal program between um, a US palliative care training college and um, a couple of sites, one in India and one in Uganda, where pal American palliative care fellows go to these contexts in part to learn about what does palliative care look like in a resource scarce context? How do we learn to, um, to make good ethical decisions and how do we learn to deal with resource scarcity in the event that it happens in our own context? And so then, yeah, I guess one of the other things um, that we've talked a lot about this year is, is the need for self-care um, for health professionals um, and that having, having your own um, personal informal ways of practicing self-care is really important, but that the institutions that you work within um, can also um, provide more formal mechanisms for that. Um, so, you know, having your own, I mean, we all as healthcare professionals need to practice self-care all the time, no matter what, what the context, so that we don't experience burnout or, or compassion fatigue. Um, and that, you know, it may be going for a run, it may be 
taking time out. It may be talking to a family member, but then it's also important for institutions to have, um, yeah, more formal mechanisms. Um, one stark example of that, I think in the COVID context that struck out for me was uh, written up in the New York Times where um, doctors, I think it was between New York and Massachusetts hospitals were buddied up and the doctors would come home from their shift or one might be about to go off and start their shift. And, and this was right at the beginning of the yeah, first wave in New York of the pandemic. Um, yeah, one would be coming home from their shift, another one would be starting their shift and they would have a Skype conversation or a Zoom conversation just to chat about how tough the day was or what they were worried about in about to, you know, head to work and step into this tough environment where resources were being stretched because there were so many people coming into emergency with COVID-19. And that, that um, these, so they sort of conducted interviews in a way with each other, um, that that was a key source of them being able to, um, to support each other and to, to help cope with their own moral anxiety that they may have been experiencing at that time. That's such a great point. I was just uh, looking at uh, one of the firms that supports employee engagement surveys is called Glint. And they wrote an article about how so many people now <clears throat> in the context of COVID are experiencing symptoms of burnout. And the people who have done this data analysis have said one of the most uh, forward looking thing to do is have conversations. To, to provide space for conversation. So this idea that you'd have a buddy system really makes sense to me. Um, Jules, yeah. did you wanna ask something too? Yes, thanks, Melissa. Um, and maybe before I ask, um, I've been reflecting a little bit about my own life as a humanitarian, as we were speaking here. And um, you know, it's interesting how you have insights into yourself at different moments. And so I've been in the humanitarian sector now for 25 years and very focused on the aspect of life-saving uh, assistance. And about three and a half years ago, or actually it would have been beginning of 2015, uh, my younger sister uh, was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, terminal illness, and she fought um incredibly hard and like a real warrior and never complained through mm -hmm. that now when she was ready to go into palliative care i was not mm -hmm. and i think the humanitarian drive of life saving that we can do more probably overtook me at those moments and it took a bit for me to recognize and be able to accept the transition. Um, and then when I did, what I saw that palliative care could do uh, for her in bringing quality of life in her last three months and enabling her to have dignity and engage with the people she loved, it was life-changing for me. And maybe that's where I became extremely interested in what you're doing, Rachel, Let's go back to this opportunity. And uh, I didn't expect this, but here we go, right? Um, I teared up at the beginning, Jules, so that's all right. I think, I think it, was about, it was about the time that your sister died that we reconnected as well. So that means a lot to me, actually, that you've just retold that story. So thank you. 
and you were a great support um, through that, even though we were many millions, not millions, but thousands of miles apart um, between Australia and uh, Switzerland. So in a recent blog, um, just going back to then where you are and in what um, we're learning as we're talking about this with you today, you wrote the opportunity has never been clearer nor more essential to provide leadership in the art of caring in death and dying. And I wanted to ask you, how do you believe we can do more to cultivate care in our sector when sometimes it hurts too much to care um, to that degree and maybe humanitarians as a coping mechanism um, become hard hearted or we become overwhelmed when we're engaged at that moment when it's clear that someone we can't save their lives. So could you share a bit on what maybe we can do to further cultivate um, care and compassion within our sector, in addition to the self care that we need to do, um, which you just spoke of? Yeah, so I'm I'm reminded of um, some conversations that I had with people in Gaza earlier this year where I was um, doing my PhD data collection, which involved talking to um, a large number of humanitarian health actors, of lots of them local Gazan health actors, um, and some patients and and family carers and some bereaved family members as well. And when I asked, and I haven't done my, my data analysis yet, so some of this is just, this is speaking off my, um, what, I, what, I remember, what I remember hearing and, and a little bit of um, intuition in having spoken to so many of these. Um, yeah, when asking them what, what mattered most to them, particularly the patients in their illness journeys, um, I remember one one lady who was had had breast cancer herself and was now um, recovered. Um, she had lost a sister to breast cancer, and she had uh, one of her children had died at a I think at about seven years old from a congenital liver disease, and she had nursed her single handedly at home as mm -hmm. as she died. Um, and when I asked her in, in all of that, and, and she'd had a recent divorce, I think, from her husband. Anyway, she suffered a lot. I said, what would, what would have helped you? And she said, I, I just wish that when I, when I um, went to get my chemotherapy every day at the hospital, I just wish somebody had smiled at me. And I just thought, wow, you know, we need to listen to these stories. I think that's, I think the, I think the starting point um, for me is, even if we don't think we can solve things right now, when it, when it's when it comes to you know palli in integrating palliative care into humanitarian crises, the starting point is to listen to these stories and to to really bear witness to them and to understand them um, and to understand that we don't have to be saviors all the time. Sometimes these small but potent acts of compassion have more therapeutic value to somebody than or as much than, you know, pain relief, for example, not that pain relief is not important. Um, and yeah, I think, so I think that's the first thing for me is really um, taking time, taking time 
to listen and and to even just sit in silence with people who are suffering rather than needing to have to solve everything. Um, and to me, that's the heart of being, a, a, you know, a compassionate humanitarian. And then I think the other thing we need to be constantly doing is reminding ourselves of the core work of a humanitarian, where the ethos of the ethos of the human, the formal humanitarian system started, that was around alleviating suffering, upholding dignity, not just saving lives. Um, and so I think remembering what the fundamental principle of humanity is, how we got there, how it came about, um, is, is also really important. Not that the world hasn't become a whole lot more complex since then, but that doesn't mean that we can't go back to the core of why it is that we're there to help people um, and remember that, that we are doing it because of our common humanity. And I think if we can, sorry, yep. Just going to say, I think that reminder of keeping the human in humanity is a great takeaway um, from our conversation today and how um, we're called to that as humanitarians as you uh, reflect back on where humanitarian assistance started. So sorry to interrupt you if you have a, another point you wanted to make there, but uh, the point of human in humanity uh, as one of our core principles, I think is, is a very significant uh, truth for us to not lose sight of. Yeah, absolutely. And, a, and a, a fundamental component of that humanity and of our common humanity is recognizing the suffering of another person. How do we respond to suffering? We respond to suffering with love and we respond, respond to suffering with compassion. Um, and I think, yeah, they're the central elements and in the heat of the moment, we may often forget that. So with all that we've uh, discussed and what you've shared, maybe I'll ask you one more question. Um, and that would be, what advice would you give to us uh, for the Cultivating Care and Compassionate Organization Initiative um, that we're working on at the CHS Alliance? What might be some last words of advice for us? I, I mean, I think some of the things I've just said that we, you know, we need to be opening the conversation, making sure that we're reminding ourselves of what this fundamental principle of humanity actually means. It's not just a word on paper or a sentence on paper, but bringing, bringing those compassionate aspects to life for people. I also think um, that, you know, for, for the more science-based people who might want a little bit more evidence around this than just nice speak, although that's also extremely important, there's, I mean, there has been a little bit of research done around um, the importance of compassion. And I'm thinking particularly of one book that came out last year called Compassionomics um, that was written by a couple of American doctors who set out to answer a question of whether compassion in health, it was specifically looking at healthcare, so whether compassion in healthcare matters. And they looked at, I think, about a thousand scientific abstracts and 250 research papers or so and found that the answer to their question, does compassion matter, was resoundingly yes, and not just because philosophically or ethically we think it does, but that when healthcare providers take time to make human connections that help to prevent suffering or to, to end suffering, they've got scientific evidence that says that patient outcomes improve, medical costs decrease, compassion can reduce pain, not just a painkiller, it can improve healing, 
it can alleviate depression and anxiety, and it can also prevent doctor burnout. Doctors who are more compassionate will feel less burnout than those who are who are less compassionate. And I think they had some some information in there um, that you know just telling a doctor to go and take some time out in, rather than telling a doctor um, you know to to be more present with their patients that that you need both so taking time out is not enough unless you're really empathic you know demonstrating empathic listening and compassion with your patient so yeah I think telling that story as well for the people that want more you know a more scientific evidence base around this could also be I guess another way to bring the sector on board um, but I think you need you need to have both you need to have the the humanistic elements and the, the ethical elements um, but it may also help to supplement it with some of this this evidence too that would be my suggestions off the top of my head yeah, so we, we hear the need for um, compelling stories and killer facts. That's right. So I have just looked up this book, Compassionomics. So mm. I will add it to my Kindle. I'll yeah. <laughs> so uh, I wonder, Jules, if you had any final reflections you'd like to make, because so much of what we've been discussing really connects to not only this initiative to cultivate caring, compassionate aid organizations, but I think the, the mission of the Core Humanitarian Standard Alliance as a whole. Are there any other final things you wanted to say that popped into your mind as we had this conversation? Yes, I think within the Core Humanitarian Standard, we have nine commitments. And within the eighth commitment, um, aid organizations have a duty of care um, to their staff. And I think part of that duty of care is ensuring that humanitarians who are working for them and with them are well, um, because we serve others better when we ourselves are well and have a reserve to give. And I am reminded of that as you were um, sharing, Rachel, that um, it's very important. And so not only how do we care for those um, that we're serving, those affected by crises, but how do we as leaders within humanitarian organizations care for our staff um, and live out that duty of care? And so I think the principles you've talked about um, apply both inside and outside. And it's those small but potent acts of compassion or kindness um, that we can offer to each other as peers, to our staff, um, to those that uh, we engage with and work with in this incredible journey of delivering humanitarian assistance um, can go a long way. It's that smile uh, that can change and equip a humanitarian to keep pressing on in these very difficult environments that they find themselves in. And at the same time, um, what we've talked about here and being able to accompany and give genuine attention um, to those that we are accountable to, that we serve as humanitarians, those people that are affected by the crisis. Important for us to give our genuine attention and truly listen um, to their needs and then respond versus coming in with our own solutions. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a good reminder of how we treat each other 
and how we care for those um, that we're serving. And if we're unable to uh, provide the life-serving or life-saving assistance, how can we as humanitarians also accompany people um, in death and dying in these environments and also mm -hmm. care for ourselves um, as we live through those um, very uh, stressful uh, situations um, so that we can continue in the journey of, of having humanity or humanness in the principle of humanity, which is so core uh, to humanitarian action. So I think the CHS Alliance um, can learn a lot from what you've shared today and our members as, as we press forward in this environment where we are feeling different stresses uh, as we're isolated more so ourselves um, in the midst of COVID. So thank you so much, Rachel. And back to you, Melissa. Thank you. Um, Rachel, for those listeners who would like to learn more about your work, do you have any suggestions for where they can learn about what you do? Uh, yeah, so there's there's a little bit on the Centre for Humanitarian Leadership website. Um, so uh, Centre for Humanitarian Leadership is a joint collaboration between Deakin University and Save the Children Australia um, and has its own website. So you can look there and I've, I've got a paper there that's um, goes into a bit more detail about these small but potent acts of compassion. Um, and I think just in, in response to your last comments um, there, Jules, I think that, you know, I mean, one of the, the beautiful things about small acts of compassion is that they, you know, they, they don't cost anything. Um, and they can obviously, as we've said, be of, of huge comfort and of huge therapeutic value. But they are also things that can either you know, constitute a deep relationship between two people, or they can be fleeting moments in time, like a smile. They can be spontaneous. They don't have to be, you know, well thought out. They can be spontaneous and improvised, but they're integral to, to us as, as carers, as we all are in, in humanitarian settings. Or they can be part of your professional role, like, in, you know, a, a health professional or a palliative care professional. Yeah, so I think, I think that's also important, perhaps as part of the, the story or the message um, in, in your in CHS Alliance's work as well, that they don't take much, but they can have enormous benefit both for the person giving them and the person receiving them. That's beautiful. This podcast discussion touched me on so many levels. It's nice that we could feel open to share our personal stories and use words that sometimes have a taboo attached to them, like death and dying, but also the word love. Sometimes people feel like they have to be very sanitized in our profession, but at the end of the day, it's all about connecting to other people. And so in that sense, I want to thank you both because your friendship really shone through the conversation. It was so beautiful to see um, these, the two of you together. So I want to thank Jules Frost and Rachel Coughlin for being with us here today on the Embodying Change podcast. I wish you um, all the success for both of you and what you're doing. And I want to thank you both for sharing. It's been a really powerful conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you, Melissa. Thanks, Jules. Thanks for having us. You've been listening to Melissa Pitati in conversation with Jules Frost and Rachel Coughlin. 
This is Embodying Change, a podcast about cultivating care and compassion in aid and development. The show is edited by Ziada Abayid. If you enjoyed the show, you can help us in three ways. First, you can share the show with your people. Second, you can leave us a review to help others find us. And third, you can make a suggestion for future episodes by emailing us at compassionateorg at chsalliance.org. We're open to your feedback and we're on the lookout for examples of good practice in the sector. We will be back soon with another show exploring care and compassion in aid development. Till then, take care and be compassionate with yourself.